Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you think because you are virtuous that there shall be no more cakes and ale? Shakespeare Othello, Act 2, Scene 3. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 86, Food and Meals in Tudor England. So first, admin. Guess what, you guys? I opened a shop. So it's not a real physical one, but it's an online one. You can come visit me there, as it were. I'm curating products that are either directly Tudor, like the leggings featuring an imaginary dinner party of all six wives, or a series of mugs with gorgeous sketches of famous Tudor women in their quotes, or they evoke Tudor themes, such as charm jewelry with crowns and leather notebooks. You can check it out at shop.englandcast.com. And I hope you'll find something lovely there for yourself. It's a great way to support the podcast, support my work here, while also getting something super cool and a great conversation starter. I also need to thank my patrons. We have amazing patrons here. Thank you so much to Kathy, Jurgen, that's my daddy, Ashley, Kendra, Anne Boleyn, also known as Jessica, Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judy, Ian from Albion. Thank you. And also, how did your students' paper turn out this summer? I would love to know. Also, Laura, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Candice, Rebecca from TudorsDynasty.com. Check out her blog. Al and Shandor. I love you guys. You're awesome. Finally, the Agora Podcast of the Month. It's September and it's still Tiny Vampires, which is about science, disease, and blood-sucking creatures. It's a a really fascinating show and I highly recommend it, the Tiny Vampires podcast. Now, food and dining. This is something I've been interested in a lot recently because it seems like, similarly to music, eating the food of a time period is one way to authentically experience that period. So a few months ago, I did the Tudor Jumbles Bake Along episode, and I wanted to revisit food this month with an episode on meals and food in general. Food, similar to the world of fashion, which I talked about in an episode a few years ago, was guided by rules and sumptuary laws. This gave order and structure to society, and the rules were very important. Not only that, but we need to remember that there was no refrigeration, and so food preservation was an area that had a huge impact on how people ate. In some ways, the rules that were associated with foods, particularly religious days like fast days, were linked very closely to the food cycle. One really clear example of this is with fasting with no meat during Lent. Of course, that didn't mean no meat in terms of fish, but just no flesh. 
So Lent takes place, of course, in the run-up to Easter. This would have been a time when there was very little meat available anyway. You slaughtered your animals in the fall, you would have eaten the meat, it would all be gone. So declaring this a time of fasting, it would have helped to alleviate any of the feelings of suffering or maybe hunger pangs during this period. Because you could say, well, I'm doing it for religion. You wouldn't, during those 40 days, you wouldn't think about how hungry you were. I mean, you might, but you wouldn't say, oh, you know, I'm going to go poach the king's deer from the king's deer park. You could just think about it in terms of the religious experience you were having and look at it through that light, which makes it much more bearable. During Lent, people became almost vegan because they were also forbidden from eating dairy foods like eggs as well. Another example of fasting that helped to alleviate the problem of food was that every Friday, most Saturdays, and some Wednesdays were also fast days when people could eat only fish. So that cuts down a huge amount, you know, nearly a quarter of the meat needed to feed the country when you declare those fast days. Fridays were fast days because of the association with Good Friday. So you always had a fast day that day. And then the other ones were based on different holidays. Children and pregnant women and the elderly were exempt from fasting rules. Catherine of Aragon received exemptions when she was sick. But one thing about her was that she preferred not to take them because she was so devout. The rule was expected to be obeyed, though, and there are records of some nobles actually receiving reprimands when they ate meat during fast days. The foods that people would eat during the fast time would be seafood, but it wouldn't just be kind of clams or cod or lobster like we might eat, but also really exotic foods like seal and porpoise. So then moving on to food preservation, because of the lack of refrigeration, most people ate things that could be made fresh. People did preserve fruits and vegetables in marmalades and preserves, which would last the winter. Henry VIII actually really liked orange marmalade. And meats could be salted or cooked and kept in a dough casing that was called a coffin, which it would also be baked in later. Small farmers would slaughter their animals before winter, and that was because they wouldn't have the food to keep them alive over the winter. The traditional time that you would slaughter was on November the 11th. That was the Feast of Martin Mass. St. Martin was a Roman soldier. He lived from 316 to 397. He converted to Christianity and was imprisoned because he refused to fight. He became a monk, he founded a monastery, and then he was an unwilling bishop. He apparently really did not want to be a bishop. He tried to avoid it, and he hid in a goose pen in the monastery. But the geese barked, he was discovered, and the people carried him to the throne of the cathedral. And the tradition was that you started to eat geese at Martinmas in order to help him punish the geese for giving him away to the people. I'm not sure how that would have worked out for him long term had the geese not barked, if he would have just stayed in a geese pen the rest of his life, he would have been discovered eventually. So it seems kind of unfair to blame the geese for it. But you know, you eat geese on November 11th on Martinmas. And this also starts the Christmas cycle as it falls 40 days, um, the day before 40 days before Christmas. So this is when people would traditionally slaughter their animals. And also in England, then people would have blood puddings and freshly roasted meat. And this was, you know, a time of great feasting because all of this meat was available. So it was it was a very exciting time, I suppose, if you liked meat. As much of the meat as possible would be preserved for the winter. You would salt it, like I said. The wealthier landowners, they could afford to feed their animals. So they would have fresh meat throughout the winter. One of the major laws around food at this period was poaching. This was when poorer people would hunt meat that didn't belong to them, either from royal hunting grounds or from the land of the nobles. And we might think that it would be easy to get away with poaching. I mean, after all, how could you tell one deer from another? 
But in towns where everybody knew everybody else, if you show up with a fresh deer that you needed skinned, you would draw attention to that. Even if you were able to sneak in at night and you had some friends who could help you, it, throughout the winter, as you had meat and others didn't, you could be suspected of poaching. And the penalty for poaching might range from having your hand cut off to death by hanging. So this was something that you would only engage in if you were really, really desperate. The diet of the Tudor nobility was up to 80% protein, and they would eat between one to two kilos of meat a day. The wealthy nobles ate upwards of 4,000 calories a day. So it sounds like a ton, but we also need to remember that this was a period that where people were not sedentary at all. You rode or you rode your horse or you walked everywhere. You were engaging in hard work. Even nobles were in homes that were not heated well. Uh, so you were burning calories throughout the winter because you were cold. And so you would burn a lot more calories than we do today. And food was kept in, especially in the larger noble households, there would be cellars, there would be different rooms in the cellar, each room would be for a different type of food. So the meat would all be stored together. And refrigeration is not actually the act of making something cold. It's the act of removing heat, which might seem like picking at nits here, but it actually is a pretty big distinction when you think about it in terms of the technology needed. So you can remove heat from something through evaporation. And there's a Roman technique that I think it's even ancient Egyptians, where with the, the particular clay pots that they had, if you if you had alcohol and you had the food had the alcohol evaporate really quickly, it couldn't it could make things cooler. And I'm not a chemist, so I'm explaining this really quite badly. But there are a lot of interesting history books on refrigeration, and even Ben Franklin did some work with a chemist on on how to refrigerate things, and that was of course 200 years later. But people did have this idea that you could refrigerate things if you were able to make the the heat evaporate from the food quite quickly. So there were some techniques that people who were experimenting with that kind of thing would have been able to do. And they even were able to make ice that way, even in the summertime. So a really popular dessert at the time in, in the Queen Elizabeth loved was uh, it was called snow, Elizabethan snow, snow cream. And it was almost like an ice cream that you would make. And they would make this even in the summertime. And it was through using some of these very ancient techniques of causing the the air to evaporate quick, quickly from water through using alcohol. And there was like a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to put up some links in the show notes to some of these articles on refrigeration that I found. And if you're interested in that, you know, it's a really fascinating subject that you could dig way deep into. Somebody could do an entire podcast series just on refrigeration. It's really, really fascinating. Anyway, so food storage for most people was going to always be an issue. And and for the noble people, they would have had access to cellars and they would have had some of these very rudimentary refrigeration techniques, but not enough to, not like what we know, obviously, not, not something that would be reliable all the time. Most of the vegetables that people ate were cooked. Even here, there's some kind of ideas around class and around the strict order of society. So for example, vegetables that were grown below the ground, like carrots or like onions, were seen as appropriate for poor people to eat. 
and vegetables grown above ground were for wealthier people. And this could also, as much as it's a rule about keeping people in their place or, you know, an idea around that, it was also helpful for the poor people because carrots and onions and other vegetables like that are easier to keep for a long time and they're easier to grow. So anybody who's ever forgotten about a bag of onions in the pantry and found them three months later and they were still perfectly fine can can attest to the fact that onions will keep for a long time. Not that I know that from personal experience. I don't think I would ever forget a bag of onions in the pantry for a year. Um, Anyway, sugar was a great craze at this period, of course. The use of sugar goes back. There's records of Henry II in the medieval period, people paying a lot for sugar. But during the Tudor period, it became really widespread. And Elizabeth used to add sugar to everything, including her salads. Her teeth were rotten because of the sugar that she ate. Also, her teeth were brushed with honey. So that would kind of exacerbate the problem. Can you imagine brushing your teeth before you go to bed with with honey? So it was actually a fad at court to walk around with blackened teeth, even if your teeth were great, because that meant you had the money for sugar too. So they were able to connect the fact that sugar caused tooth decay. And if you had blackened teeth, that meant you had the money for sugar. Sugar cost about six times the price of honey. And Elizabeth lost so many teeth that by the time she got older, her words were often difficult to understand because she didn't have her teeth. And so there's letters from ambassadors talking about how they couldn't understand her because she didn't have any teeth left. Fruit was popular in season. And throughout this period, we have new developments in trade. And that meant that new fruits were enjoyed much more often. So oranges and pomegranates would come from Spain. They were made especially popular from Catherine of Aragon, who could afford these luxuries. And also apricots were brand new in England. They were introduced in the 1540s. So interestingly, the Spanish word for pomegranate is Granada, like the city where Catherine's home, the Alhambra is. So I think that's kind of interesting that she then popularized pomegranates. And the first time I saw pomegranates at the grocery store here, I was like, what, Granada? That's a city. But that is the Spanish word for pomegranate. Again, you could only have fruit in season because of the lack of preservation. But people did try to preserve their fruits in marmalades to eat during the winter. Most people ate three meals a day, although breakfast was very, very small. It would just be bread with some butter, if you were lucky, and some ale. Remember that people didn't drink water during this time period. They thought it was dirty, and it likely was, considering there was no sewage, and everything would just run right into the water supply, including the butchered animal parts, things like that. So it was quite dirty. So people drank kind of watered-down beer or ale, and the nobility would drink wine. People might drink up to six pints of beer a day although it was much weaker than our beer today, of course. Otherwise, everybody would have been walking around drunk all the time. The main dining period was dinner, and that was served between 10 and 11 in the early Tudor period, but it started getting put back and back. So by the end of the 1580s, it was at noon. And that meal could easily last several hours for the nobility and the wealthy. It was divided into two courses. Each one had several dishes. And that then brings us into sumptuary laws. Sumptuary laws were rules that dictated how you could live, and they maintained the difference and the distinction between the ranks. An interesting thing about the 16th century, and one of the things I love about this period, is you start to see the rise of the middle class. Suddenly, you have men like Woolsey and Cromwell who were advancing based on the power of their brains. You see this rising merchant class and trading class. And there was a strong reaction to that from the nobles. Also, with ideas from the Reformation, 
spreading that stress a personal relationship with the divine rather than one through a church hierarchy. For many people, it may have seemed as if the old order was completely falling apart. And so there was this rise in sumptuary laws that dictated everything from the kinds of fabrics that each class could wear. And that would be based on your salary. It would be based on what class you were in. It dictated the colors they could wear and also the food that you could eat. Now, most of the people who were affected by the sumptuary laws were the wealthy courtiers who would try to outdo each other in showing off. And if you disobeyed the law, you could be punished with a fine. Nobles were meant to limit the amount that they spent on food to 10% of their incoming money, although that was only for the immediate family and it didn't extend to the extended family and the servants, the household in general. There were rules about how many courses you could have at each meal, how many dishes in each course, also what types of meat were allowed to be served. So in 1517, Parliament passed a series of sumptuary laws designed to, quote, limit the excessive fares of the nobility. And this is mostly the the kind of minor nobles going around trying to outdo each other. And they thought that was excessive. And among their rules, they spelled out the kinds of meat and the number of dishes per meal that you could serve, that each class could serve. Cardinals could serve nine dishes in each course. Dukes, earls, and bishops could serve seven. Lower lords could serve six. Gentry, three. And each dish was made up of a set amount of a particular item. So one swan or peacock, four smaller birds, 12 very tiny birds. Weddings were exempt from the rules. And also if a host was having somebody of a higher rank over for dinner, he could serve the appropriate dishes for that higher ranked guest. You didn't have to go by yours. If you were having an earl over for dinner, you could have the food for the earl. The most basic food eaten by the poorest of the poor was pottage. And this was pretty much soup made from vegetable stock with some barley or oats. And if you were lucky, you would have some meat in there. And wealthy people also ate pottage, but they added in nuts and spices and wine. And it was a very different pottage experience. Monarchs and nobles would eat a huge variety of meat, including beef and mutton and goose, peacocks, robins, buzzards, and deer. So importing food was becoming all the rage at this period as well with the trade. And especially when Catherine of Aragon was queen, if you imported food from the Mediterranean, it kind of would add this exotic element to your meal. And it was also a statement of your wealth. So people would import Mediterranean things like citrus fruit and olives and artichokes, almonds, and that would add a little extra pizzazz to the Tudor table and would have enhanced your status. But one of the most important imports at this time were spices. Most of the food that was served was served with a sauce, and that would have been flavored with herbs and spices including ginger, cinnamon, pepper, licorice, and mace. A lot of people think that spices were used to cover up the smell and the taste of bad meat. But remember that the nobles had money for fresh meat all year long because they could keep their animals alive. So this wasn't something that was covering up bad meat. It was more just adding something in, making it a luxury product and being a marker of your wealth. A great example was beef stew that they would make with cinnamon and cloves and mace and grains of paradise. That was a peppery spice that was obtained from ground seeds. They would also put in onions, parsley, sage, vinegar, saffron, and salt. So you can only imagine just how how this would have smelled, these spices coming in. Bread was also added to thicken it up, and it was often placed at the bottom of the serving bowls to soak up the juices. Most of the poor people ate seed breads and whole what we would think of as kind of whole wheat breads. And opposite from today, people actually thought that white bread was healthier. And that's because with the seed and nut breads, when you took it to the mill, 
who knows what other stuff could be added in there. So you might have bits of tree bark and and who knows. And white bread was seen as pure. You could see what was in it a lot better. Not all of the food that you saw was actually even meant to be eaten. Sometimes there were these really elaborate dishes and they were called subtleties. And they were made from either sugar or almond paste or wax. And they were these beautiful statues made out of food. Cardinal Wolsey had a feast in 1527 for the French ambassador. And he had over a hundred of these subtleties or they were also called devices in the second course alone. These food sculptures were made to look like buildings, including St. Paul's. They were made to look like people, including models of people dancing and jousting, and also a chessboard. So they were just these beautiful statues made out of sugar and almond paste. And you can imagine it was designed to, again, show off your wealth, that you could you could afford so much sugar that you could just make it into a paste and turn it into a building that wasn't even meant to be eaten. So the vast choice of foods on offer to the Tudor court was really impressive. And it's kind of a different, we we have this idea in our head that you have Henry just kind of chewing on turkey legs and then throwing them down to the dogs. And it, it wasn't like that. They had a vast amount of food that was available to them, especially at this period with the growing trade. And so after the courses that you ate, the two courses if you were at court, you might have a third, which was kind of like a dessert. There would be sweetmeats and wafers. And you would eat this course standing up. It was known as the void. And it had a couple different meanings. It was likely that the table had been cleared or voided. And so you were standing up to eat it. More rules dictated how people sat. So there was a strict order of hierarchy. The highest ranking people sat on the table to the right hand of the top table, the highest ranking person at the top table on a dais, and it would move down to the lowest ranking person at the furthest end. But you can imagine that that would cause the seating charts would have been a nightmare. Anybody who's ever tried to do a seating chart for like a wedding or something like that can just imagine what this would have been like for feasts if you've got this ambassador and if you've got that nobleman, but they don't like each other. But here we have to insert this person. And you can just imagine there were actually books of etiquette because you also had to have people's parents or their foster parents. The Pope, there was actually a book that instructed the seating of the Pope's foster parents. So it was really, really important. It was a, a really big part of meals was getting this etiquette right. And when people ate, the high table had chairs, the highest ranking person had a chair, but the rest of the people would have pulled trestles from the side of the room. They were like benches and then put them back around the side when they were finished to save space in the main room. The table was covered with a cloth and because of how expensive it was to clean cloth, it was very, very bad manners to spill. Food was shared with different dishes. Food was shared with different dishes, different portions being shared between two or four people. And because you were sharing these dishes, you had to be very careful about bringing your own knife and spoon to the meal. You wouldn't use your hands. You were sharing with somebody else. So it was important not to, even though they didn't have germ theories, they understood the dirt would, could make you sick. And so it was very important that you wouldn't touch food that would be eaten by somebody else. And so people would bring their own knife, their own spoon. Forks were still foreign at this time. There's stories of people going to Italy and talking about these strange things they use called forks. And so they were still foreign at this time. The food was served on a trencher and that would be made of silver or gold for the king, but for most people, it was bread. And the diner would put some of the food onto his trencher. If it was soft food, like a stew or like pottage, you would put that onto your trencher and then you would wipe your spoon clean with the bread and you would eat the food by dipping the bread into it rather than spooning it up. And dining was 
a really communal affair at this period. It was really unusual for people to eat by themselves at court. Generally, the king, the monarch, would eat with everybody, although Elizabeth I did like to eat with in her privy chamber with just some of her, her ladies. But again, it was still a communal thing. You didn't eat just completely by yourself. Meals were governed by etiquette, as we've seen here. So there we have it, our little overview of food and dining. So the book recommendation this week is by Terry Breverton. It's called The Tudor Kitchen. But I also want to draw your attention to a free future learn online course called A History of Royal Food and Feasting, which is put on by the University of Reading. So you can check that out as well. I'll put links to everything in the show notes at englandcast.com. Next week, I'm going to start doing a series on the English Reformation because we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses. So there will be a lot of information coming your way in October on all things religious. Remember to check out the website for links to becoming a patron, to check out the super cool Six Wives leggings in my shop, or get a full archive of all the shows. And I will be back again next week starting the religious fun. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoffe, Bord in Baurabrik, that soul is Samly's on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.